0: find Acts chapter 12 in your Bibles this morning, uh, looking at the subject matter, God's providence and the church's prayers. And indeed, I trust that there will never be a Sunday that you come to church that you don't have your personal copy uh, of the scripture with you. Uh, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, another James at this point. The James in this verse would be James, the half-brother of the Lord, that wrote the little letter of James in our New Testament. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to him. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increase, and multiply. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Father, we know that the business you're about is reaching the nations and the people of the world with the gospel. Lord, we count it an honor and a privilege to be a part of that process through our giving, through our going, through service acts that we're able to do. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be mindful each day that we would open our mouths and speak about what you've done in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your problems, for your sovereignty the way you engineer circumstances that people might be saved. And Lord, we know that as this takes place, we need to be a praying people because there are things in the Bible that we see that you have determined to do through your people's prayers. So God, may we earnestly open our minds and our hearts this morning to understand Your Word, to understand this passage more clearly than ever. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit apply it to each and every one. We pray in each one. I'm sure that you realize as a Christian that the enemy with whom we struggle is crafty. He's got a way of striking in different ways. Of course, he can strike when things are bad, but he can even strike when things are good and going smoothly. We've already seen in the book of Acts the attacks of the enemy from both outside the church, when the enemies of the gospel came against the apostles and the church. We've also seen his attacks inside the church, at the very hands of those that we would have thought were members of the body of Christ themselves. But they ended up working contrary to God's purposes. Now that's what continues to happen in this chapter today. As chapter 11 was closing out, blessing was being poured out as God's Spirit was moving on the church at Antioch in a very powerful way. We saw how Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome itself and Alexandria, Egypt, and then Antioch, uh, we saw last week how Antioch was being reached with the gospel. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 12, we're back in Jerusalem, and what do we see? We see how the enemy is attacked. We know the year is 44 AD because we're told here about the death of Herod, which can be placed in that year, and so we're approximately somewhere around 12 years removed from the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's three things that Luke highlights for us here. Number one, the providence of God. Number two, the prayers of the church. And number three, the preaching of the Word. And what we're going to see here is that while one apostle is put to death and another is put in prison, yet the gospel continues to march forward. It reminds us of what Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. He said, Timothy, while I may be in chains, I am greatly comforted by the fact that I know that the word of God is not shown. I.H. Marshall writes, from Luke's point of view, the emphasis would appear to be on the triumphant progress Of the gospel, which is not hindered by the death of one apostle or the imprisonment of another. When the church prays, the cause of God will go forward and his enemies will come to naught, even if this does not exempt the church from suffering and martyrdom. Luke's belief in the victory of the gospel is thoroughly realistic. Now again, this goes back to Jesus' words in Matthew 16 when Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Regardless of the attacks of the enemy against the Lord and against his family, the gospel is going forward and the church is being blessed and built. Now, folks, it makes it critical for you and I to ask a question. And the question is not whether or not God is on our side, but are we on His side? That's the real question. Because man has a tendency to make everything about himself when in reality it ought to be about God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the providence of God. Look again at the first two verses. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. What we're going to see here initially is the death of James and then later on the deliverance of Peter. We're told in verse 1 that Herod laid hands on people in the church with the intent of harming them, and he had James put to death by the sword. Now before we get into this, let's think about the influence of the Herods in the New Testament. There's seven Herods that we read about uh, in the New Testament. The first of the New Testament, Herod's, was Herod the Great. He was in power from 41 B.C. to about 1 B.C. He's the Herod that is mentioned in Matthew chapter 2. When the wise men came from the east and they inquired about the one, they've seen his star in the east and they want to know where the Messiah uh, is to be born. And Herod the Great, of course, was so jealous he had all the baby boys two years under, uh, two years and under put to death. That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was married ten times. Now his family, who also crosses the page, uh, pages of the New Testament, or Herod Philip I, He was the first husband of Herodias. Remember Herodias? She's the lady whose daughter danced and her stepfather said, I'll give you anything that you want, and Herodias instructed her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. That was Herod Philip I. He held no official office. Then there's Herod Antipas. Herodias left Herod the first, and then married the other Herod, Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of Galilee and Perea. He was the second husband of Herodias and consented to the death of John the Baptist. He was also the Herod to whom Pilate sent Jesus for trial. Then there's Herod Archelaus. He was the ruler of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. He was a bad ruler and he ended up being deposed and banished. Then there's Herod Philip II. He was the ruler of Idumea. He was the founder of Caesarea Philippi, which is named after him. He's the Herod of Luke chapter 3. Then Herod the Great had another son called Aristobulus. His mother was Miriam, and she was descended from the Maccabees. Now he was murdered by his own father. Then there's Herod Agrippa I. This is the Herod of Acts 12. Now, to complete the list of Herods, as if you're not confused enough already, this Herod Agrippa was also the father of Agrippa II, before whom uh, Paul will later give a defense of the gospel in Acts 25 and 26. He was also the father of Bernice, who appears with him when Paul was examined, and also the father of Drusilla, who is the wife of Felix. Now, from that brief synopsis, we see that the Herod of Acts 12 was a descendant of the Maccabees. That during the Old Testament and the New Testament, in those 400 silent years, The Maccabean Revolt, remember when Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that wicked Syrian ruler, tried to drown Jerusalem in idolatry and paganism, the Maccabees rose up and led the Jews in a revolt, and they were successful in that revolt. This Herod here is a descendant of them. Now, that would have put him, to some degree, in good graces with the Jews. And and plus, on top of that, he tried to observe a lot of their uh, laws and and ordinances. And so this endured him to the Jewish people to a certain degree. Now, what Herod did in these first two verses of our text was probably to further endear him to the Jews. He had James put to death, probably beheaded. That made James the first apostle to die. Remember, we've already seen the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, but Stephen was not an apostle, he was a deacon. This James right here was James, the brother of John. Do you remember those two? They were among the very first of Jesus' disciples, whom he called. They were in the boat fishing with their father, and Jesus came along the shores of Galilee, and he called them to follow him and be fishers of men. And what does the Bible say that James and John did? They immediately forsook Their father's boat and their fishing, and they followed Jesus. So they were very obedient men. Now, again, this James here is not to be confused with James, the half brother of Jesus. Now, this James right here, you'll remember also his mother. Remember the mother of James and John. On one occasion, she came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come to your kingdom, let one of my boys sit on your right and one of them sit on your left. Now, even there in Matthew, Jesus alluded to the fact that James and John were going to have to indeed drink a cup of suffering. But he said, I can't give your sons the left and the right places. That's the father's business. James would be killed right here in chapter 12. John would be the apostle who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation. The point being, both of them would suffer just as Jesus had predicted, yet in different ways. Now, folks, what do we notice about that? Turn to James chapter 1 with me a moment. The James, the half-brother of Jesus. And what do we see about about suffering and trials that the Bible talks about? Are you and I exempt as believers from hardship and suffering? No. No even Christians will suffer. In James 1, verse 2, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some translations say there, count it all joy when you fall into divers uh, temptations or trials. The Greek word there that when you stumble or fall into them is the same word used in the parable uh, of the good Samaritan when the man was traveling down to Jericho and he fell among thieves. Do you and I get up in the morning and leave our house and intend on going out uh, uh, about our business that day with the intent to get involved in suffering and trials. Do we purpose when we leave that morning, I'm gonna go out this morning and I'm gonna find some trials and tribulations because I don't have enough of them in my life. No. We fall into them, they just happen. And when it talks about various trials here, it's the word from which we get our word, our English word, polka dot. In other words, uh, trials just come in kind of all different shapes and sizes. Life is dotted with trials, and the Bible says we're well, even counted a joy, because God works in a believer's life through that suffering, building steadfastness and character. Intent. And so the point is here, in the providence of God, we see that believers are not spared from hardship in life. Folks, we need to remember that we live in a fallen world. God doesn't promise you your best life yet. We have an enemy, Satan. And sometimes God puts us in the furnace to purify us. Now, whether we live or die, we are to be found faithful. James was a faithful witness, and yet he died. Think about that. He didn't die because he was unfaithful. He died because he was faithful, or in spite of the fact of his faithfulness. I think of that that roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. All those names that are mentioned out of the Old Testament of the saints of God who suffered tremendously, some of them even being sawn in too. And the book of Hebrews says, this world was not even worthy of him. They were faithful. We are to be faithful. James was faithful. Now tradition states that as he was going to be executed, the guard was so impressed by James and with his witness That the the guard was actually saved. That the guard professed faith in Jesus Christ. And guess what happened to the guard? Tradition says that he was martyred alongside of James. I don't know if that story is true or not. I, I hope it is. But nonetheless, James appears to have been faithful right up to the end. Folks, may you and I, may all of us be found faithful, regardless of what we encounter. Now, I want us to pause and think about something before moving on, because again, James was martyred here. We're going to see that uh, Peter was delivered. That reminds me of Isaiah 55. In the providence of God, what's Isaiah 55 say? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We don't always understand the plans and purposes of God. Yet Romans 8.28 says, In all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him. He's not saying everything's good. Some things are evil and bad, but God is able to work good through all things. God is sovereign. Can you and I trust God with our lives? Whatever you may be going through right now, can God be trusted with that? Absolutely. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they finally showed up down in Egypt to buy food from him and and Joseph had been elevated to the prime minister of Egypt? Joseph looked at his brothers and said, "Don't be afraid what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Why does one live and the other die? I don't know. You don't know. But God knows. Why do some of you, why do some of us go through trials and tribulations and hardships in life? We don't necessarily know right now because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we're looking through a glass dimly. But then we'll see face to face. You may not ever, this side of heaven, understand why you've gone through some of the things you've gone through. You may not see until after the fact. But one thing the Bible consistently tells us from Genesis to Revelation is that you and I can trust the sovereignty of God. God is providential and God knows what He's doing. The providence of God. Evidently, He was through with James, but He wasn't through with So the second thing I want you to see here is the prayers of the church, beginning there in verse 3. It says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Again, Herod is doing what he's doing to gain favor with the people. Now, we're told it was during the days of unleavened bread. The Passover feast would have been on the 14th of Nisan, which would fall around our March or April on the Gregorian calendar. Now, I say around March or April because the Jewish calendar and the Gregorian calendar don't line up perfectly. But remember, the month Nisan for the Jew was to be the first month for them commemorating the night that they left Egypt. Now, as the Jews are celebrating Passover... In Nissan, what are you and I as believers celebrating? Easter. And I say it doesn't always. Ma- I said March or April because some years you'll notice we have Easter in March, and some years in, in April. Now, for for Passover and the seven days to follow, no leavened bread was to be used. That week was called the week of unleavened bread. Now, during that week, no trial or execution was supposed to be carried out. That, too, helped shed light on the illegality of the trial of Jesus. Remember, they were hurrying up everything, trying to get Jesus crucified before Passover. Now, this explains why Herod had Peter cast into prison instead of trying to kill him immediately. Because it was that week of unleavened bread where no executions were supposed to take place. We see that Peter was being guarded by four squads of soldiers. A squad of soldiers was four soldiers. So that means 16 soldiers around the clock in shifts were guarding uh, Peter And from verse 6, we're told that Peter was chained, not just with one chain, but with two, and he was between two guards. Two on every shift that he was between, and two standing guards. Four guards on each shift. Now folks, we're being set up for something by being told that. What if it was one chain and one guard? What would some people have said? All oh, the chain was defective in some way. Peter was able to overcome the one guard and get his keys and break out. That one guard fell asleep. That's what people would have seen. But being between two guards with two standing guard and two chains, what, what is God setting this whole thing up for? The whole thing is being set up so that nobody will mistake what God is doing here. God is about to work in him. Now verse 5 is a key that we'll come back to, how prayer was being made for him. Beginning there in verse 7, we see a supernatural deliverance. God sent an angel. Now, occasionally in the Bible, we read of angels who do God's bidding. Second Kings 5, Benad, the Syrian army commander, has the house of Elisha surrounded. And Elisha's servant goes out and is scared to death. And, and Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he'll see that there are more with us than are with them. And the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw the heavenly host lined up all around Benedad's army. Also think of the angel at the garden tomb, the, the, the tomb of Jesus when they went there to finish anointing the body of Jesus and he had risen from the dead. And the angel said, you're looking for the dead among the living. He's not here. He's risen just as he told you. Many occasions in the Bible speak of God sending angels. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent to help out God's saints. Folks, we can be grateful for the ministry of angels. Now, let me say that several years ago in America, in fact a decade or more ago, I, I think the nation really had an unhealthy obsession with angels. There was more focus being put on angels than on Christ himself, and that's not right. But nonetheless, we can be grateful for the ministry of angels. The Bible says sometimes you and I might entertain angels and not even be aware of it. This angel comes to set Peter free. Now, apparently, it is in direct response to the prayers of the church. Now, thinking back to James a minute, perhaps with James, things happened so quickly that the church didn't really have time. But when Herod laid hands on Peter and put him in prison that week of unleavened bread, they had time. They gathered together and with urgency they were crying out in Peter's behalf to the Lord. They they prayed. And that's the real distinction here with Peter. They were praying. You know, Paul certainly believed in the prayers of the church. Remember there at Philippi when, when Paul was under his first imprisonment and the Philippians were concerned about him? And Paul wrote to them and said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has fallen out for the good of the gospel because I am, I am here at the Praetorian Guard and I'm chained to these men. And, and because of that, the gospel is going out to all of Caesar's household in the world. And Paul was confident that his first imprisonment, he would be set free, and indeed he was. And he said to the Philippians, I fully believe that through your prayers, your prayers are going to be something that God uses to get me delivered. And then in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul talked about all the hardships he was under, that at times he felt like he had the sentence of death in himself, he said, but I'm confident that your prayers are going to help me to bear up under everything that I'm going through. And indeed they did. And Ephesians chapter 6, in that spiritual warfare passage, he ended that by talking about the prayers of God's people. He said, pray that God would enable me to open my mouth and speak the gospel with clarity. And so, folks, the early church certainly believed in the prayers of one another. God works through the prayers of His church. We're being shown a couple of things here. Number one, God's ways are higher than our ways, but number two, we're being shown at the same time about the efficacy of prayer. When the church prays, God moves. Now, you've got to appreciate Peter's peace. Remember Peter back in the Gospels, there on the Sea of Galilee, and there's this big storm, and all the disciples are scared to death. Jesus is down in the bow of the ship, and he's fast asleep. And they wake him up and said, Lord, don't you care? We're in the storm, and we're about to die. Don't you care? Wake up! And remember how Jesus woke up, and he calmed the sea. They were scared. This time, Peter is in the midst of the storm. He's asleep between two sides. Peter's been a changed man. This is a different man than we see in the gospel. He's a lot like Jesus here. He's asleep in the storm. Isn't that beautiful? But folks, we, we need to see that when the church prays, God moves. Now, we think the early church was perfect all the time, but they had their struggles too. The church is praying here. Peter is delivered. Now, you got to see their humor in all this. The church is praying for Peter's deliverance. Peter is delivered. He goes back to the, to the church. He knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door. hears his voice. Goes back, tells the church, Peter's here. Our prayers have been answered. And they tell her, You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You've got to see some humor in it. Seems like it was easier for Peter to get out of jail than it was for him to get back into the church. But it shows us something, doesn't it? Even they sometimes were were weak in their prayers. Sometimes we say, you know what, I'm not going to pray because I'm just so weak in my prayers. Why bother? They were weak in this prayer, but they prayed. God still worked in spite of them. Pray because God works in spite of our weaknesses. What a marvelous touch of the grace of God. Well, God delivers Peter through his providence and the prayers of the church, but he also deals with here. He deals with here, beginning there in verse 18. We see the demise of here. He's a hardened man. He has these 16 guards killed because he's been humiliated. Now, what he's doing here. by by having these guards executed that let Peter get away, he's practicing what was known as the Justinian Code. The Justinian Code that soldiers had to live by was that if your prisoner gets free, if he escapes, you suffer whatever sentence or whatever fate your prisoner was going to So Peter was going to be put to death as soon as the days of unleavened bread were over. And so here has the soldiers put to death. Then he leaves town. He, he goes to handle a skirmish or a complaint. Uh, there were trade agreements between the people of Tyre and Sidon and the Jewish people whom Herod ruled. Uh, Tyre and Sidon had been two principal cities of Phoenicia, and for centuries, the Phoenicians had dominated the Mediterranean world with their highly developed sea trade. Now, we are dependent to some degree on Josephus for what happened here. Josephus was the Jewish historian, and he sheds light on this account. Herod went to Caesarea, which had a large amphitheater. Back in January, Connie and I, because of your graciousness, we had the opportunity of standing in that very amphitheater that seats, I think it was about 15,000 people. And you're sitting there in that amphitheater and you're looking out towards the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea is a beautiful city. And right in the middle of that amphitheater, probably about 10 rows up, is a little flattened out, cut out section, and we were told that's where Herod in Acts twelve, where Herod would have been seated in this event right here. That was the king's spot, and Herod was seated to to hear the the complaints. And, and Josephus says how he had big shows put on because here the people are of Tyre and Sidon there to 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 complain about things, and what he does is he has big shows put on to to kind of entertain them and kind of change the mood, lighten up the mood a little bit. And and Josephus, in the scripture here, alludes to the fact of how he's all decked out in his royal garb. And Josephus talks about the sun glistening down on him. And, and just radiating out from him. He almost would look like some divine figure sitting up there. And the people here said, A God has spoken to us. God struck him. Dude. Josephus says it took five days for him to die. He was struck immediately. Some say his appendix ruptured and all the poison poured out into the abdominal cavity, and in agony, writhing pain, after five days, he died. We're not told exactly how he died, but that's what some say. Folks, there's a bitter irony here. The man who looked glorious on the outside was rotten to the core on the inside. But again, what I want you to see, the providence of God and the prayers of God's people involved here in spiritual working. Spiritual working. What do we try to do so often times? You and I try to roll up our own sleeves and do what we can do. And so often we fail miserably. We don't But the Bible says through the prayers of God's people we're involved in spiritual warfare through prayers and again when the church prays, God moves. What are some situations in your life right now that maybe you need to quit rolling up your sleeves and trying to see what you can do and maybe you need to get down on your knees and instead take that before God in prayer and let God move in. Third thing quickly, the preaching of the word. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. God delivers his servant and his people. He deals with the man who's the enemy of the gospel. He blesses the spread of his word. An enemy of the gospel is taken out of the picture. The gospel train marches on. The word of God will prevail. Folks, what's God up to God is up to reaching the nations. God's providence and the prayers of His children are used by God to keep getting the good news about Jesus to a lost and a dying world. They didn't allow a little bit of opposition or even the martyrdom of one of their own to prevent them from the mission that God had called them to. people look at the world today and some say, you know what, it's just too dangerous of a place. It might cost us too much, and yet this group of Christians right here that we're looking at, they love their lives not unto death. Revelation 12, 11 says, they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. What matters to God is the spread of the gospel, the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. Is that the business that you and I have? Is that the business you and I? Have? And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 when he talked in that passage about seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus promises when we're about God's business and we put that first in our lives, then God will take care of our business. We're so busy taking care of our business, forgetting about His, and even our needs oftentimes are not met. God says you take care of my business first, first, take care of your business. You don't have to worry about that. And so are we about what God is about? That's the real question. have some lessons here quickly. Number one, there are enemies that we must stand against in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Don't be alarmed by opposition you may be facing for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes these enemies might win a battle, but remember God's won the war. So lesson number one, there are enemies that we face. Number two, God is sovereign. We don't always understand His ways. But just like David in Psalm 139, he said, God, where can I go from Your presence? I can't get away from You. And he was comforted by that. We can be assured by the fact that we can trust God's not just providential over the nations. He's providential over your life and my life. And the last lesson, even though God is sovereign, He works through the prayers of His people. Never forget, never forget that God blesses the prayers of the church. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep trusting. And keep going being about this.